Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is The Stacks Book Club Day. We're welcoming back fellow podcaster, Brittany Luce, who hosts NPR's It's Been a Minute. She is here to help me break down Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieterer. Monsters is an expansion of the author's 2017 viral Paris Review essay entitled, What Do We Do with the Art of Monstrous Men? Part memoir and part inquiry, this book forces the reader to think deeply about what we're willing to accept from our favorite artists and celebrities. Today, Brittany and I talk about the many questions and ideas that this book brought up for us, from monstrous women and their relationship to motherhood, to our collective love of punishment. There are no spoilers on today's episode. Make sure you listen through to the end of the episode to find out what our October book club pick will be. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Also, while you're there, will you go ahead and leave The Stacks a rating and a review? It goes a long way to helping folks find this podcast. September marks two years of making The Stacks as an independent podcast, and I am so, so, so grateful to be able to make the show that I love in the way that I want to make it. And I could not do it without the support of the Stacks Pack over on Patreon. This community not only gives me the space to hire a team of incredibly talented folks that make this show possible, you know, Christian, our editor, and Lauren, our production assistant, but it also provides a community for so many other book lovers to engage around books, politics, and of course, snacks. So if you like the show, or if you like books, or if you like snacks, and you want to be part of a community that is excited about all of those things and more, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. It's just $5 a month. You get to be part of making the show possible. Plus you get perks for yourself, like our virtual book club meetups, our discord that has the best book recommendations ever in the history of the world and our monthly bonus episodes. And you also get shout outs on the show kind of like this. Shout out to our newest members, Amy Marillo, Alejandra Balthazar, and Seth Wilson. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. And if you're not in the Stacks Pack yet, have no fear. You can go to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. I promise you it is never too late to show your support for this podcast or for any of your favorite artists and creatives. All right. That was a lot. But now it is time for my conversation with Brittany Luce about Monsters by Claire Dieterer. (laughs) 
All right, everybody. I am so excited. It is the Stacks Book Club Day. I am joined again by NPR's Brittany Luce. Brittany, welcome back. Thank you. It's so good to be back. I am so excited to talk to you about Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieterer. For people who have not read the book yet, um, we are going to talk in detail. So there might be some spoilers, though I'm not sure you can really spoil a book like this. But if you're nervous about that, don't listen yet. But let me tell people what the book is about. Basically, it is a collection of essays by a cultural critic named Claire Dieterer that's examining this big question of what do we do with the art of monstrous artists. Um, The term monster is sort of broad. Um, but I, you know, she starts it with Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, uh, people that I think we can all agree have some monstrous <laughs> accusations yeah. against them yeah. or, yeah. or, or more. And then it sort of goes all over the place and, and we'll talk about all of that soon. But Brittany, where we always start with these book club episodes is sort of generally, what did you think of the book? Generally, I found, okay, I, I appreciated the, um, the ambition of the book, it was um, for everything that it covered and for all of the references, um, it was very well written, very, mm-hmm. very, very easy to read. I don't mean easy to read as in like she uses simple language or something like that all the time, but it just, it wasn't, it, the, I felt like the writing never got in the way of yeah. what the point of the book. I was like, oh, this is elegantly written yeah. um, and well edited. I think that overall this is like an exploration of how one very thoughtful very well read very experienced critic who's also like a gen x white woman yeah. as who who's like from the pacific northwest and lives on like a cute lovely sounding little island yeah <laughs> um i think that like like it's definitely like i was coming i just come at the like the, the idea of like art and artist and and who are these monstrous men and sometimes women, monstrous people um, who make work that we love? I come at it from just a different generation, a different racial and ethnic experience, different cultural experience, different background. And so some of my references are a little bit different. Um, but I will say to that end, though, she does consistently again and again throughout the book ground it in her point of view her experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are some aspects, there are some parts of the book that I got way more out of than other parts. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say like the second half to me really is when I felt like I was like, okay, things are clicking picking up steam for me. But also though, I will say the second half also has to do a lot with like motherhood Mm -hmm. in a way that, 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 so I'd be really, I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about that. But um but also, again, my references for thinking about those things are are different um, yeah. than the authors. So I I felt like it was a very she's trying to answer a big collective question through uh-huh. the specificity of her own experience as a point of view, yeah. and I think yeah. she does that. Yeah. Okay. So this is my second time reading the book. When I read the book earlier this year, I had a lot of thoughts and feelings about uh, Claire Dieterer as our guide, which I definitely Mm -hmm. want to talk about today because I think she is, for me, a black millennial woman from a major Mm -hmm. urban center who's lived in major urban centers and and consumes different pop culture and stuff. I think she's an imperfect guide for me. However, Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. thing that I loved about this book and the thing, the reason that I wanted to do it on this show, specifically with a black woman, you, Mm. enter Brittany. I had a feeling once I was reading it, I was like, 
I see why she called me in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like this. I, I was like, I want to do this with like, I need the right person. Um, but the reason I wanted to do this is because there were so many things that came up in this book that resonated with me and how I think and talk about art, regardless of how Claire Dieter or whatever her answers were. Like it mm-hmm, asked mm-hmm. the questions that I want to be talking about as a person who talks about art and culture constantly. It was making me question, you know, why do I feel this way? How come I have weird feelings? about being an authority. What's that coming from? What does a stain mean to me? Like, what are the things that are stained? It brought up all that kind of stuff. And like, Mm -hmm. what does redemption look like? And I want to get to all of that. So I recognize that Claire Dieter is an imperfect, you know, lens through which to ask these questions in some ways, but also Mm -hmm. maybe she's the perfect person because she's willing Mm. to be subjective. And I feel like that's sort of the point of the book is like, all of this is super subjective. You're not going to get an answer. she says it over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, there isn't a calculator. I'd love a calculator. There's not one. Um, So I I felt, I feel like this is a worthy book for discussion, regardless of my personal feelings or ability mm-hmm. to relate or not relate to Claire Dieterer, um, yes. which to your point, like talks about how good the writing is. And like, she really crafts some really strong arguments, even if I don't agree with them. And I right. think like that is also part of the question of this book. Like how much do we have to like the person, even if they're not a monster, even if they're just a white lady from an island in Seattle, yeah. like, like how much does she matter to me in this book or should she or whatever? So all of that. I also did not like the back half. I really, I think after the Wagner essay, that's sort of where I, I both times I sort of like clicked out a little bit. Um, the last essay I loved, but the like yeah. mother stuff. I'm excited talk- to talk about the last essay because I already, that was, th- that for me, Mad at Miles, we'll get there. But that, okay. the, the, the writing that she talks about in the last chapter is, that's my magnum opus when I think about how to think okay. about engaging with the work of a monster as a fan. Okay. I have not read that. So you'll have to tell me more about it, but it's good. It's really good. Okay. So I want to start, I guess I think we should just start with Claire and kind of get it out of the way because I feel like she's lingers in the book. There's something about Claire Dieter's writing that she makes me feel like she's a pick me lady. Like, Oh, I'm what? a cool girl, like a cool <laughs> girl. You know, like how but she the talks thing is, about is that she copped to though, like wanting to right, be a cool she girl. She does. She does. But I, even even though she cops to it, I feel like she's sort of okay with it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, it's like they're t- she's talking up like in the Wagner essay, she's talking about like, you know, the Jewish problem of like anti-Semitism and how it always shows up and like how someone and then she sort of like offhandedly defends Woody Allen and Roman Polanski by being like, because they're Jewish and like they could, you know, like there's always these little moments where I'm like, you're still defending these people that you're all like, I don't know. There's something about, there was something about her like brand of feminism that felt really rooted in her wanting to be accepted by the boys that was Mm. off-putting to me because I felt like I'm following her argument, but I'm also like, you're not even following your own argument. The cool girl stuff that you're bringing up, um, that I didn't catch so much. I think that some of... um, like the idea that she had this uh, close artistic connection to Woody Allen and Rowan Polanski to me, like, or like she like looked at them as like people who were like um, heroes, like artistically people whose right. work that she really like viewed as like some kind of North star to me. I chalk that up to like 
a cultural and yeah. generational divide. So like I was in kindergarten, like my whole, like I was in kindergarten when like the stuff about Sunyi and, and Woody Allen came out and effectively, yes, he is not technically canceled. Like Woody Allen is still continue. He still continues to work. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, literally, he yeah. debuted like I think so, like he debuted some new work this week, or, or he was at least at I think the Venice uh, Film Festival at the time yeah. of this recording, and um, so he's obviously technically not canceled because he can still work and he's still got defenders, but um, like for my life, he kind of was out of the public eye ever since I think like his relationship with Sunyi Previn became public knowledge um, mm. and they became like a public item. Pretty much. Uh, I, I just felt like he wasn't really a part of like, like uh, he wasn't really at the center of like the cultural zeitgeist the way that he was yeah. in the eighties and certainly not the seventies. Uh, and so I think I thought that like her connection, like I, like she was born, I think in the late sixties, I thought her connection to uh, Woody Allen specifically as a filmmaker was that, she grew up loving and watching his movies. And so Mm -hmm. it's like this long, almost like the way I think many people think about, many people of our generation may think about Michael Jackson, for example. Even though Michael Jackson also had allegations out by the time people are even like at kindergarten, first grade. uh, Still, society was different back then. Media was different back then. They weren't thought of in the same way um, as people might think about like child abuse allegations today. Um, But Michael Jackson was somebody who like in my like my like I grew up with his music and I like my my parents grew up with his music. Right. Right. There was this like sort of inescapable nature to his cultural contributions. I thought about it like that's maybe how she thinks about um, Woody Allen and probably also Roman Polanski as somebody who had been doing film who like cut their teeth writing right. film criticism in the 90s. Right. It's like, oh, of course, the people who'd be making films in the 90s would be directly influenced by Woody Allen and Roman Polanski. And so right. that visual language would be something that she would have a lot of attachment to. So um, I I kind of chalked up like her um, like obsessions with these filmmakers as, and even to like the desire to be a part of like, even when she talked about like, you know, film criticism in the 90s at this Alt Weekly mm-hmm. in Seattle was like a boys club. I just felt like that is just a generational sort of thing yeah. um, that I just isn't, it's not, it wasn't, it's not really the, in the same way a part of my reality. Uh, but I didn't, t- I didn't necessarily take it as a pick. I didn't take her for a pick me in that way though. No. Okay. What about the like lack of black people in this book? They show up a little bit, but so barely, until the last essay when she then uses Pearl Clegg's like her work to kind of center her own work. But like Michael Jackson just like is a blip. Kanye West is a blip. Cosby is a blip. And yes, I have a lot of like, I don't know. I have theories about maybe why I just felt like hmm. such a missed opportunity to me because I really feel like there there's a conversation to be had about white consumers and their relationship to black people when, when allegations come out or like when they're accused or when they do a bad monstrous thing that I wish that Claire Dieter would examine through her own subjective lens. Like I'm curious about how a white woman engages with these 
these accusations versus how she engages with an accusation against Woody Allen? That's a very good question. I kind of wondered the same thing. And I was thinking, I was going back and forth about that in, in reading the book. But the thing I kept coming back around to was, well, I have two thoughts. Okay. One, I, I, one has to do with uh, the chapter on anti-Semitism and racism, mm-hmm. which we're going to come back to. Uh, but the first thought that I had was that like, I am actually glad that she did not spend as much time or ink on (laughs) talking about like artists and abusers of color uh, because I, I got the sense from reading the book when I was like looking, I felt like I was getting a mental map of like the soundtrack to her life and the Mm -hmm. movies that like Mm -hmm. all the things that, that sort of like, I was getting like a mental map of her cultural references and touch. Yes. And I think I was kind of like, well, what about this person? Like you said, I was, there was a chapter that, has Michael Jackson basically like in the title. It's like a but sentence. Read, yeah, but then you read the chapter. I'm like, okay, is it, where's, did it, is the Michael Jackson in the room with us? Like, yeah. where is it? What's happened? Um, but I also was thinking about it and I'm like, okay, well, then what are the other two options? Like, she could do a, a bad job of right. trying to incorporate these references and these artistic heroes that aren't relevant to her or, natural for her to speak on um right. especially if you're gonna if you're gonna open up the michael jackson pandora's box baby there's so many things you got to get into yeah <laughs> there's yeah. so many things you gotta yeah. get into that she may have felt mm, this i don't have the depth i don't have the depth i, I don't right. have that that, that depth of experience to get into that um but they're also or she could do the thing of like and I know there's this all this other stuff that you know i could reference you know which some people sometimes do they'll be like well you know, they'll do sort of like a, you know, I don't know how to put it, but they'll kind of put in like almost like a lazy or like a, like a, like back into referencing like, well, I, I know that there's all this other stuff going on, but I'm just going to focus yeah. on this thing that I already know. And I'm like, yeah. mm, I'd be annoyed if she'd said that. And right. she might also be undercutting herself like as an authority, but also too, I'd be annoyed if she decided to like loop all these other guys in. So I was kind of like, eh, I'm actually okay with her keep in. And, and she kept again, bringing the focus back to her, but right. In the in the Wagner chapter, which was titled, hold on, let me crack, let me crack uh, the anti semite, the racist, and the problem of time. I think yeah, the anti semite, the racist, and the problem of time, which I thought was, um, I actually I thought that that chapter, as it related to anti semitism, um, was really thoughtfully written and yes. researched, and I, uh, yeah, and I was I was I was like really really stunned by some of the things that she had uncovered and talked about and talking about yeah. like. Uh, Winifred Wagner, like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like basically, (sighs) you know, his daughter-in-law or whatever, who was kind of like a Nazi to the bone and also like the person who like the keeper of his legacy. But I, um, but racism gets like a passing mention in that chapter. And that is a chapter I wish, I wish that she would have actually just left the racism out of it because the anti-Semitism was so good. was so good. And it was so strong. Like all of that was really, really thoughtfully researched and mapped out. I I don't know um, her religious or cultural background other than I know that she's a white woman, as she says in the book. Um, So I don't know if that, if like, if she's Jewish and that is something that like she has. I didn't, um, I didn't think she was Jewish because she kept mentioning how she asked her her Jewish Jewish friends. That's what I was thinking too. So that was my inference as well. But the thing about that, though, is that it also made me wonder, like, OK, well, if you did all of this deep research and you were so right. stunned by, I mean, Wagner's really horrifying anti-Semitism and how 
that, you know, influenced people, you know, influenced Nazis, like the soundtrack to the Nazis. Um, I'm like, why couldn't you have done that level? This is right. One of the things I'm very curious to hear what you, uh, what your thoughts on this is that kind of took me out of the book was that the, her really deep asking of these questions was something that really occurred to her in like 2014. And she Mm -hmm. says also in 2016, Mm -hmm. um, is when it really started to coalesce for her. And that comes with the grab him by the pussy moment with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and she's like, you know, we were about to enter into an age where our heroes would fall. And I'm thinking none of the people who fell were my heroes in 2017 after the me too movement. None of those people were, my heroes. So I was a little kind of like, okay, I don't know. As a black woman, I, and and somebody who grew up listening to rap (laughs) and as Mm -hmm, a rap fan, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a hip hop fan, I came out the womb (laughs) trying to balance this. How do I like the art uh, and, and the way that, and and the artist and the way the artist talks about people like me, how do I balance all of that? That is something I think that, um, that I kind of, I don't know, I felt like that really shone through in the Wagner chapter. I was like, oh, when it comes to something, even if you don't have personal experience with it, you still felt comfortable doing research and and really expounding upon this yeah. in a way that's really effective. And then she brings up like two or three. Little House on the Prairie as her yeah. racism. I'm like, bitch, that's yeah. the only racism like, you could find? That's what I was thinking. I was like, it, there's so many, there's way, as, as, a, as I was just thinking like, you're talking about Wagner in Germany, very consequential, very important. But I'm like, as an American, mm-hmm. you found some examples from like 150, 100 years ago. And that's yeah. like, I was just kind of like, huh? Like, it, yeah. I don't know. I, I was like, there's like, you, I, child, I'm like, we could have gone back to Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's just mentions, so much. There's so much. I kind of felt like it was a big oversight. And I kind of wish that she had just left the racism out of it because she was given it its own chapter. Deep. Or, like or given it its own chapter yeah. and done done it the proper justice. Yeah, that's how I feel. Like I understand. Like I don't want Claire Dieterer to tell me about racism, but I'm interested in what Claire Dieterer thinks about racism. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yes. Like I don't like I don't want a white woman to be like, "Oh, this is how racism feels for black people" or whatever. Like, no, no, thank you. But I do think that it was an omission on purpose. Like I think she was like, I don't want to do the racism part. And let me just slide it in here. And to me, that's Mm -hmm. annoying because I think like, I know she also did the thing very early in the book, which pissed me off where she was like, we're not going to talk about athletes. And I think that was a big mistake because I think that athletes- racialized to me. I'm not going to lie. It felt (laughs) super racist, but also like, I think about like OJ Simpson. Imagine what a chapter about that could have looked like for someone of that age, a white woman. Like it was such a cultural phenomenon. He was an actor before and like what it looks like to be someone one that everyone's rooted for and then people like there were I just feel like that chapter I was like I wish that was there because that could have been her entry point into being a white woman navigating talking about Mm. race you know what I mean like and Mm. that's like a perfect entry for her but her being like we're not talking about athletes I literally was like this bitch how dare you like (laughs) like let's talk about it let's talk about it because let's talk about it or don't or don't mention it which I was or don't casually mention it yeah yeah, don't especially because sports don't doesn't come up the whole rest of the book. So I was like, oh, right. why, why, why was that? The rest, like I said, so much of the book is so carefully written and edited. You can tell. Yeah. Um. And and it was yeah, like such a, it was like, like she was listing monsters, and then she was like some athletes. She's like, oh, but we're not going to do athletes because that would be a whole other thing. Like, yeah, that could be yeah, a whole be own day. book. And I was like, yeah, we'd be here all day. I was like, okay, well, you know what? I don't, I don't, I don't appreciate that. I'm like, I don't, um, I don't like that mention. Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't like that attitude. Um, okay. I want to talk about this. I want to get your thoughts and feelings on ethical thoughts versus moral feelings. This is a distinction that she makes in the book and kind of brings it up throughout. I didn't get Did it. Did you feel clear on what the difference is between no. those two things? Okay. I didn't get it. I thought that was I just don't... a me thing. I Because I'm like, Mm-mm. I just, I thought that was a me thing. Also, too, I think, well, well, I know we're going to get to this, but, but like you, as you mentioned in the last chapter of the book, um, she relies upon a really seminal writing by a fantastic black feminist writer, Pearl Clegg. Fun fact, Pearl Clegg and my auntie were best friends in high school back in Detroit. Oh! Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> and I, uh, and I actually did like that chapter. And I mean, I love, I love the essay that she, that she refers to, but we'll get there. Um, but I, one of the things that she says at that point is that like Pearl Clegg is writing about her monster, Miles Davis, as with with like fully aware of her subjectivity as a black woman, as an abuse survivor, as a feminist. And I think that because of like the culture work that I do and have always done, I've come from like a space of like a self-started, self-funded show that focused on black people and black culture. And that's Mm -hmm. like what I did for like the first eight years of my career. Like, and also too, because I am a black woman, subjectivity is assumed when many white people look at me. Right. Subjectivity is assumed when many, you know, as she talks, she gets at this when many men look at her um, when she, when she was an early film critic, she got the sense that they had assumptions about her, uh, her ability to remain objective. I have a lot of thoughts about, we could at another time. I have a lot of thoughts about like the utility of objectivity in journalism yeah. as it traditionally thought about, but I don't have access to people assuming that I'm going to be neutral or feel neutral. Right. So the right. idea of of object of uh of like the thoughts versus feelings, like moral feelings and what was the other objective ethical thoughts? thoughts. Ethical, ethical thoughts versus moral feelings. To me, I didn't. It didn't latch on for me. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. la- I didn't latch on to it. But again, I didn't either. I think I'm coming from a place of like nobody thinks my ass is subject is is objective. Well, right. But what's weird is like when she brought it up, she talked about how her friend had some comment about Woody Allen or whatever, and then she's like, "Oh, that's her feelings." I thought she was going to share her thoughts, and I'm like, "How are you making that distinction? Like, how do you like? Is it is it up to the person who's receiving the information to decide what's a thought or a feeling? Is there actually a difference to her? How does she know when something is a feeling versus a thought when we're talking about things that are entangled with feelings and thoughts? Like, right? It just I just couldn't quite." get there. And to me, it also feels like a distinction without a difference. Mm. Like even if I understood her distinction, it didn't, it doesn't feel like it matters. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel like, like who cares if it's a feeling or a thought it's how I'm feeling and thinking about these things, this thing, this piece of art, this person. And I felt like, you know, for as much as I really appreciated the questions that the book brought up, this, I, this is like one of those moments where I felt that like pick me energy of her being like, oh, this woman's just having feelings about it. I'm like, well, mm. so are you then, you know, like. An embarrassment around emotion is something that actually shows up repeatedly throughout the book. I think about yes. like the scene where she's in a co- her college class and, she, and, and her class finds out that Raymond Carver died and one of her female classmates like bursts into tears and she was mm-hmm. embarrassed by that. Or there was like mm-hmm. um, another uh 
point in the book where she describes like a cry in like a form of protest mm-hmm. against this oh, yeah. artist where women came to like one of the last uh, women came to a showing of his and laid on the ground in front of his work and cried like burst into sobs and she was saying that like and this was in italics in the book it made her feel extremely uncom- uncomfortable like yeah. um the idea just the thought of that made her feel uncomfortable and i was thinking like right. hmm something to interrogate right. but Isn't that yeah something the idea so interesting? that feeling and emotion is like should should be completely shut out of the way you view something is but that's something so interesting that throughout the book and it's interesting because like she's an art critic and art is supposed to evoke feelings, you know, like mm. art, that's like what art is supposed to do, you know, kind of air quotes around supposed to. But like, I think if you talk to any artist of any medium, they're like, I want people to have feelings about what I've made. Like I mm. want people to engage with it and I want it to resonate. You know, those are the words you hear. So this right. idea that this art critic is like so uncomfortable with any form of feeling and that like feeling is less than thinking to her is just so it's so interesting. It's just interesting to me. Like, I don't mm-hmm. get it. You know, I love when I see a thing and I'm like, oh, my God, I have goosebumps. Right. Like that's feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's just like and, and she talks about that in the stain, that involuntary reaction to the art that like mm-hmm. when something is stained, it's, even if you don't want to, you can't help but be affected by the stain. Um, And she talks about it being involuntary. And she talks about it again at the end in the last essay, The Beloved or The Beloveds, where she talks about loving an art, piece of art. You Mm -hmm. you can't help it. It just happens. And to me, I guess that would be the difference between feeling and thinking, but it's so small. I'm not sure I feel a difference. 100% agree. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And 
producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. How did you think about the stain? The stain is her idea that like these, the crimes of monstrous people are, are analogous to a stain on a piece of clothing. Yeah, I, that, I thought that was, I thought it was a good idea. I thought it was clear. I thought it was a nice analogy. It wasn't... It didn't feel like a new idea to me, it, but I'll say, and I, I I can't actually recall whether or not she presented it as a new idea. I think she more so presented it as her. I think she way said it was someone else. Through this. Yeah, but she yeah, said like, someone else had said it had come to the same right idea of the stain. Exactly. Yeah. So I I um I like that chapter, and I understood what she was talking about. I mean, recently I was at a family birthday party, um, for an older family member, and. You know, there was a DJ and there was Michael Jackson playing sometimes. And it's absolutely, uh, she says something in the book about like, you know, when it's hard to resist, Mm -hmm. you kind of can't resist when you hear Michael Jackson's music wafting through the air. And like Michael Jackson is a person who like I uh, had spent a decent amount of time thinking about because I had to listen to this whole like 10 episode like podcast series to interview the makers for um, it's been a minute. And it was a great series called think twice very good um that gets into like his allegations and his alleged crimes mm-hmm. um against children and alleged abuse of children um and so i spent a lot of time thinking about this i've read on michael jackson which is a great essay collection by margo jefferson which really gets into um his genius and like the mark that he's left on american culture um and i but i still don't feel comfortable listening to him like uh, really at all anymore at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was at my aunt's 75th birthday party and I forget which song it was, but it was like, it might've been Billie Jean or something like that. But when it comes on, I was like 45 seconds into the song dancing before I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't, I feel icky, but that like when she talks about like that sort of like, that's, that's me confronting the stain, the stain is there. Um, and there's nothing you can really do to kind of get it out. Um, and yeah, so I thought it was a helpful way of thinking about it, but it was like, it didn't feel new to me. And I know that's not everybody's like measure for, um, how to think about a book like this, Yeah, but I have, it. it's a personal thing peccadillo for me that I get impatient when I read um, books that are about ideas and mm-hmm. I'm confronted with something that I already I'm like okay let's let's keep going yeah. <laughs> so that's how I felt about the chapter about the stain what about you interesting I, I really like the analogy it didn't feel new to me either but I liked thinking about it I like thinking about if the stain moves backwards in time like mm. if someone is stained at 40 years old does that then infect their work that they did at 20 
at mm, 15, mm-hmm. at three. Yeah. Um, because I think like another part of this book that I'd, I'd like to talk about in a little bit is about sort of, or maybe we can talk about it now, is sort of like this, the abolitionist lens of all of this. Like mm. what can monsters do to be redeemed? Can they ever be redeemed? What does it take? Because there are people in popular culture who have done monstrous things and have righted the ship. Mm-hmm. And so I think this idea of like the stain moving backwards in time is like deeply not abolitionist, right? Like it's deeply <laughs> like to like say that a three-year-old, like to say that any work that Michael Jackson did, and obviously he's very complicated because he was abused as a child. And so that gets right, really complicated. Right, right, right. But to say that anything that he has ever created, even if it was long before right. the crime is like off limits because of the crime and and even before he was famous like is he a ruined person is he a stained person or is the art stained right like 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 Quentin Tarantino the accusations against him is that he was a real big bully asshole treated Uma Thurman like shit and abused her but does that mean that all of his other movies are stained too or does that mean that he became a monster at that point is he still a monster like what does that look like and so i think that thinking about the stain as like an actual object on a mm. piece of work was helpful to me because like i think about a shirt i have this beyonce shirt that i love and it definitely has stains on it and i wear it <laughs> all the time and i don't care because i love the shirt so much i'm maybe mm. not going to wear it if i'm going to go meet barack obama but like i definitely wear it all day every day in my home and like I love it so like what does you know like so what does that look like if we transfer that analogy to art and so I think that's kind of how I was thinking about this chapter and also how I think I thought a lot about the book is like Claire Dieter presented an idea and then my brain was like let's run with it like what does that look like and I think that's why I really liked this book is that maybe it's not a perfect book, but the ideas in it were so generative for me and like so provoking. Yes. And you know what I mean? Like, it's like, okay, yeah. Claire Dieter, not like wish there were more black people, but also I can just apply this to black people. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, so so the stain part was, I think, really, that chapter I, I, I really liked a lot because it gave me a framework to think about the monsters in my life. And like, I'll, I'll be really frank with people. Please don't yell at me. Please don't cancel me. I, I'm just going to be honest. I have started to listen to Kanye West's music again more since reading this book. Interesting. I, started, Interesting. I, I just feel like his stain for me does not impact his older work. So like I still have been li- able to listen to my beautiful dark twisted fantasy because I sort of don't think of that book as or that song, the music as his stain era. I haven't listened to the new stuff, but like I, it, I can totally understand that. I absolutely, to- I totally can understand that. I, I, and I think that that like makes a lot of logical sense. Also, it makes me think about what you were saying earlier about her love for Woody Allen. Like one day, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like your kids are gonna be like, right. um. So you was listening to this Kanye guy. Yeah. Well, okay. So my kids love Kanye. They're only three, but I haven't ah! had to explain it to them yet, but they love him. But Um, in the future, they're going to have some understanding of him that's going to be post all of this stuff. It's going to be totally different than, you know, people our age who literally legitimately fell in love with his music. Yeah. Soundtrack. 
to our lives for so long. But no, that's yeah. that's really, really um that's And really I don't feel like his sins show up in his work, his early work. Like I think with Woody Allen, there's an argument to be made that his love of young women shows up in uh, his work. So it's easy to see it. Whereas Kanye's stain, I'm like, it doesn't really show up till later. Later. <laughs> like, but I think what I will say is like, okay, well, one thought. Just a quick aside about Kanye. For me, I have been looking at Kanye with a side eye for a really long time, even yeah. though I still did listen to his music, because he always made really wild comments about mm-hmm. black women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was already like, I mean, sure. I was again, but like, that's like being that's being a hip hop fan where you're like, all right, right. like, okay, like, I'm just gonna this is a good song, yeah. I'm gonna block it out. But um I'm glad you brought up the point about Woody Allen um and like like his stain, uh, because and his stain, you know, of like, you know, wanting to, you know, abuse and sleep with young women, um, girls, really, uh, that like being the allegations against him and also that being also him being married to his stepdaughter. And also, right. um, you know, that being like Manhattan, the film Manhattan is about a guy yeah. who's like a grown ass middle aged man dating <sighs> a 17 year old girl who's still in high school. And the thing is, is like. I, the, the way, I'm glad you brought Woody Allen because I also think about R. Kelly in that way. Mm-hmm, I think about mm-hmm. Michael Jackson in that way. I'm actually glad you brought up Quentin Tarantino because I also kind of think about him in that way. Um, I'll explain what way in a second. Uh, these are all people for whom their art is in many ways a calling card for yes. the sort of abuse allegations yes. or actual abuse you know, that they were enacting against other people. So like yes. Quentin Tarantino, his leery gaze, the leery gaze that he has around women, the way uh, female characters are often treated in his films. Um, you know, there's that, that, that tracks with, you know, w- with what Uma yeah. Thurman was saying, the way that Michael Jackson um, used his music to kind of put forth and use his music and also his PR team to put forth this very childlike image. That's like uh, Michael Jackson's a friend of kids, R Kelly, you know, the Pied Piper, the Pied Piper. you know what I mean? Like this guy who, uh, who's just like got so much sex appeal. All the girls are going crazy for him, even if they're in the eighth grade, like right. Woody Allen, like I'm making, you know, the film Manhattan enough said, um, there's a lot to, uh, I, something I wish maybe that that like that there's one more thing that I wish like I like that she could have really dug into in this book is like how to think about people who use their art as like the ultimate shield, the ultimate backstage yes. pass, or yes. the calling card for the abuses they would you know like the like, you know for the abuses that they were enacting on other people or that they'd be accused of enacting on other people. That's the thing that I think about um, right because that lot. this then that makes the stain show up even more. Like yeah, you can't you look can't... away from the stain. It's like, Bill Cosby. Uh, that's what yeah. she was, when she was talking about, I can't even watch the Cosby show. Uh, and she kind of gets at that a little bit because he's like who, what he was doing and who he's supposed to be on the show are so far apart from each other. She's like, I can't yeah. Even. And I get, I get it. Cause I can't even, I haven't even seen the Cosby show in over a decade. Yes. But I know people reason. who can watch the Cosby show because they feel like his crimes don't appear in the art. In the same way that if you watch Manhattan, it's like you're super confronted with Woody Allen's crime. That's so interesting because my thing is, is like even though the crimes don't co- like show up in the art, let's say, although Cliff is a gynecologist, which is freako okay. shit, which is weird in, in context, his house, freako in his house, free in the basement, freako yeah. shit, honestly. Yeah, and um, but like I, I do, um, but the thing for me is, is that that public persona, like it's still for me 
fed into this public persona of him as America's yes. dad that gave yes. him cover. It's like, does your yes. is your image giving you cover? Or is sure. your image providing like a way, like an easy explainer, like, you know, Michael Jackson being the damaged, the poor damaged child? Is it giving you cover right. or is it giving you like an easy ex- like explanation for why you're abusing other people? Well, and she talks about like, ugh, I got to find it. She talks about like eventful, eventful assholes and like how we love, we love events. We love drama. And, and she taught like. And she talks about that's why we love the genius or whatever, because they are giving us events. They're Johnny Depp is giving us this trial to like, you know, mm. be, to to be a part of, to I watch, to root for. And for me, again, this brought me back to this aboli- like abolitionist thinking about punishment. It's not just that we love eventful assholes. We also love collective punishment. We love throwing someone in the garbage can. Even, and I'm not talking like cancel culture. I'm thinking like someone like Sinead O'Connor. Right, that was like right. a fury of pleasure, okay. Uh, to hate her was a joyful event for her sins, which now would seem like basically nothing. nothing. I mean, it'd be Tuesday. Yeah. Right. But it's like, it feels good to collectively hate a thing or punish a person or, or root for one side or the other. Right. Like there is joy in throwing away a person that I wish she dug into because I think that that again is like, that's art imitating life or life imitating art, right? Like we, people love the jails. They love the prisons, lock her up. Like there's so Mm. much about, it's not just about the person giving us an event. It's about the person giving us something to rally around, something to talk about. It's giving us discourse and punishment and just like those feelings, again, feelings add to the art, right? Like, Mm. That's what I kept thinking about. And that's what I keep thinking about, about this book, because again, it comes back to my question is like, how is there redemption, right? Like there really never was redemption truly on a large scale for someone like Sinead O'Connor. Right. You know, I think through the passing of time, people's younger people like us saw what she did you know, I don't remember it at the time. I was young, young, young. But like, yeah. I remember learning about it and being like, this seems stupid. Like, this is silly. And then I was like, like she was wrong. Was, I was like, okay, so. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, like now I'm like, this was wrong. And I think, you know, at her death, people kind of talked to that and spoke to that. But I don't think there was ever a redemption for her. And like, and, and another person who died prematurely, who I think did have a redemptive arc, which I wish she talked about, but she didn't talk about athletes, is Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant became America's girl dad. And like, how does that happen? And I know. And to me, I mean, I have a theory. My theory is that people, he was still an active athlete. So people could still root for him and they were able to root for him yeah. as Lakers fans. And so therefore they were able to feel like they could root for him as a person again. He had the opportunity uh, to brand through that. Yeah, exactly. And like, and he was a winner. He wasn't a loser. He, he, he won a lot of titles after that. And, Bingo. you know, and I, so I like, this I I just keep thinking about like who who has successfully be unmonstrified themselves and how and why and like you know what is the road to be un unmonstering I wish that that was in the book you know I'm glad that I, I'm really interested in this abolitionist lens that you brought to the book um because it does give me like yeah another way of thinking about it I um. The the thing though I, that same that same section you you mentioned where um, she was talking about how like you know on some level we like 
We're like we're we're interested. Like, we're attracted to the monster because of the genius. That's from the chapter that she had about Hemingway and Picasso, and yeah. um, you know, both of them being like serial abusers of women. Sometimes uh, in Hemingway's case of children, also yeah. in Hemingway's case, like a um, serious drunk and all this stuff. Um, <clears throat> but like, also just an aside, she brings up the sun also rises in this chapter, which is a book that actually I I do, I, I do like. And it was so interesting to me that later there's a chapter about racism. And I'm like, baby, there is in the, in the beginning yeah. of the book in the earliest chapters, there's a really nasty weird mention of like right. wanting to do sexual tourism uh in Africa. So I'm kind of like Right. Right. <laughs> well, we picked there were opportunities to talk about racism know, she chose like, not to take them. Are, exactly. Um I was like Joni Mitchell blackface mm-hmm. anybody? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, mm-hmm. there was there's there's mm-hmm. an opportunity there. But um that chapter was interesting enough to me but also like I have been thinking about like about genius and who gets to be one and all of the privileges that, that mm-hmm. are in constant genius. Um, most recently, I think uh, at least among like black Hollywood slash creative circles, that word has been thrown around a lot uh, with regard to Kendrick Lamar and mm. well, Kendrick Lamar in music and Donald Glover in uh, TV with Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'll say I, I liked a lot of Atlanta. Um, I mean, I really liked a lot of Atlanta. I thought it was really great. And I really like most of Kendrick Lamar's music. I think it's really great. This most this last album, I was like, what the fuck is going on? This is some real <laughs> weird, bigoted shit. I don't weird know. And also shit. just, it weird felt a little shit. recycled and sonically it wasn't giving me a lot. Not as best. Lyrically, it wasn't giving me a lot. No, because uh, does anybody know the songs? No. Do you hear no. them playing now? No. So it wasn't that no. good. But I'm not arguing with people, but um, I, something I always have been thinking about is black female genius. That is something I think mm-hmm. about all of the time because mm-hmm. genius, again, for me, a lot of my earliest references to co- cultural conversations around genius go back to hip hop. So yeah, Kanye West is at the forefront of that conversation mm-hmm. and Kendrick Lamar is at the forefront of that conversation. To some Dr. poor misguided Dre. people. Yeah, Dr. Dre for sure. To some poor misguided people, Eminem is at the forefront of that conversation. Okay. I ask you to okay. seek prayer. Okay. Okay. I ask you to seek <laughs> prayer. Um, but like in also again, but like those geniuses have opportunities to it gives them a pass to, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, the, the Beyonce's Renaissance show, which I went to, Ugh, and I, I loved, went to, was loved, amazing. Cried. Um, it was is this ode, a beautiful ode, and and I I really mean this wholeheartedly to you know to black joy to black queer joy though specifically, mm-hmm, and it was really mm-hmm. deeply influenced um, by and created by people of mm-hmm. that community, and yet with Kendrick Lamar's most recent album, um, which features quite a few uh, f bombs. And mm-hmm. I'm not talking about fuck. Uh, yeah. And has like some weird, like stereotypical depictions of women in it that feel kind of goofy. Uh, and it just really, t- and, uh, and like kind of details like how shitty he is to his wife, but how he should kind of be absolved and he doesn't want to be a genius and don't pay attention to me and don't look at me. But like, but I'm right. like, you know, almost like don't look at, it felt like the, like the album equivalent of like, don't look at me, even though I'm right. on live crying. Um, right, 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 right. <laughs> like, and yet he was still brought out like, I mean, the, the the black queer community, trans community were incensed at Kendrick Lamar's most recent album. And yet 
when Beyonce did a remix of one of the songs from the album, she included Kendrick and he came mm-hmm. to her birthday show and performed with her. And that yeah. to me was like a, hmm, you can give anybody space and hmm. But you know what yeah. Kendrick Lamar is? He's a genius. Same thing with Kanye West, right. which people were rocking with Kanye up until he made anti-Semitic remarks, which are totally unacceptable, completely unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. But I find it very interesting that that was the focal point. That was been this, saying yeah. a lot of wild shit about black women beforehand. So yeah, I, I, I think that like that was like the genius conversation thing. It was interesting. Um, but I just kind of found myself like, okay, I know I, I, I'm with you. Yeah. Like, I get it. Like genius does allow a lot, but I think way more interesting conversation that I wanted to get into that she kind of does get into a little bit is like, whose genius do we miss when we're giving all these other people passes? I always want, that's the question that has been way more interesting to me. I'm a child of Tumblr. A lot of the things that are in this book are really well argued, well argued, well written. um, And I enjoyed reading them. But as far as like new ideas, the first half of the book to me felt a little bit lacking. Um, Okay. Well, let's get to the back half. Yeah. yeah, Let's get to the back half. Let's get to the back half. So I felt like, Claire Dieterer wrote the first half of the book, felt really good, turned it in, and her editor was like, okay, but you have to include monstrous women. And she was like, okay. Okay, um, <laughs> okay that's a very good point. There are two monstrous women chapters that I was like, in the back half that I was like, yeah. if you say so. The am I a monster because I want to write a good book and I'm ambitious chapter was literally felt like, nails on the chalkboard to me because I'm like, Claire, you're setting women back 50 years right now by talking about how terrible you feel about doing your fucking job. Same you work. have the, you are a, you are a writer. You're a professional writer. You get to live the dream of so many people. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wait, I close the door on my kids. I feel terrible about who I am. And I'm just like, I get it. Like I'm currently on tour and I do feel bad when I leave for five days. And I'm like, here's a list of things to do. But I'm also like, I can't wait to do my show in LA and bring my fucking kids and have them see me do a thing. That's you know? the thing that I fantasize in becoming a parent. That's one of the things that I think about. Of yeah. course, yes, investing in that and in my child and helping them grow. Yes. But selfishly, I'm like, I don't know. Like the feeling I've enjoyed the feeling of feeling proud of a parent and yes. feeling really impressed by them. That's and- why I cried at Beyonce. When Blue Ivy came yes! out, I cried so hard. Yes! I just cried- goosebumps just saying that I didn't think I was going to care because I saw I saw it online I saw it in LA so I've seen every other concert basically on TikTok but I was like overwhelmed by the pride that I felt you know third hand for Beyonce as a parent for Blue as a young child to be that focused and capable and I just thought like that's right that's also parenting and like And I'm just sick and tired of this idea that if you're a woman who chooses to have children, that you're a bad person if you also choose to have a job. I just, that's lazy and it's old. It's so old. I say this as somebody who grew up with, my mom worked until, I'm I'm her second born. I worked, she worked until I was born. Uh, So she had like 10, 12 year career as a social worker before I was born. And then she became a stay-at-home parent. So I experienced my entire life, my mother was a stay-at-home parent. Uh, and she did have other jobs, but her, but they would be part time sometimes. And she, did, it wasn't like an all the time thing. And it was definitely like once my younger sister and I were a little bit older, and my father didn't travel as much for work. So there's a very different relationship. Speaking specifically only about Black women and white women in the United States. Yeah, 
very different relationship to the idea of being a working mother. Because by and large, most black women have always worked. Now, my grandmother, she did work, but sometimes she didn't work because she was disabled. She had a disability. Um, But my mother started, my mother started working when she was seven. And she started actually, like she started working like, uh, you know, like uh, under the table money, little errands and stuff like that when she was seven. My mother started working in a doctor's office when she was like 10 or 12, like working. So my mother worked from then until she had me when she was 33. And so that's 20 year career my mother had basically (laughs) working all of the time. And supporting, you know, like, you know, her kids, her, you know, you know, lots of different, her family, extended family, um, and taking care of, of people and, you know, being a part of a family community. You know, so like, not just money, but babysitting and, you know, mm-hmm, you know all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So my mom has always worked in take, taking care of people. Uh, and so for my mom to stay home was a, a really uh, immense privilege. And that's something that she took a lot of pride in. And I'll say I love my mother because. My mother never lied to me about it being easy. I could see. I had eyes. I could see that it was hard yeah. to be a stay-at-home yeah. parent for a variety of reasons. The mental load alone. Driving us yeah. everywhere alone. <laughs> Things that maybe she maybe was interested in that she didn't get to try or didn't get to do until right. much later alone. I understood all of that. And she was honest with me about it being hard. But she, I also know that me and my sisters are the most important things in the world to her. But mm-hmm. going back to this idea of Black women always working, or most Black women always working, there's never this like, am I going to be a mother? Am I going to, how can I work? Now I have some of that because I grew up with a stay at home mom. So I have a little bit of that, like more mainstream traditional, like idea of what a mom is in my head. That is kind of hard for me to reconcile with. And that's something I'm dealing with myself. Uh, but culturally, I also understand that that's not most black people's experience. And right. also like when I think about a mother writer, I think about Toni Morrison, Toni mm-hmm. Morrison I'm not trying to shake Claire Dieter because everybody got their own experience. But Toni Morrison has like, you know, obviously everybody knows the story about how she get up at five o'clock in the morning and write, you know, in long form on yellow legal pads before mm-hmm, her sons got mm-hmm. up and had to go to had to go to school. But also when you learn about her life story and when you read and listen to some of her interviews, um, you know that she had family help which is, again, mm-hmm. something very normalized in the Black community. You don't raise right. your child by yourself. You have cousins, aunties, sisters, friends, uh, you know, uncles, grandparents, all these things. Right. You don't raise right. your child alone. Child care is not something that you have to do by yourself. Um, but also, although child care is a big thing, and I want to acknowledge that, but also like Toni Morrison, I, she had this quote, I can't remember all of it, but she was asked something about like the, I think this probably was the 90s, like the teenage mother problems, 80s or mm-hmm. 90s. And she was saying that like, I think that if a young woman gets pregnant, then the family should help her take care of the baby. Her life doesn't have to end. It should just, the the child is part of the family. And so the family should help mm-hmm. take care of them so that the mother can continue on and take care of, like, you know, gain the skills or the education or the experience that she needs to be able to, to contribute, not just to her child's life, but to the family in general. Mm-hmm. And that sort of like community mindedness, I, I bring up Toni Morrison, obviously, because she's brilliant writer, artist, thinker, but also because she is of a previous generation to us and Claire Dieterer. And so right. the whole idea of like, how am I going to work and how am I going to be a parent is so, for Black women, to me, it's like not really, it's not really a thing in the same way. We don't have the lineage of that being like a big thing. Now, I will say the other thing I'll say, and this is just maybe where I'm coming from, and as somebody who really wants to become a parent at some point in the next couple of years, 
I think like I hit a point where I, I was very nervous for a lot of the re- things that she outlines in the book. I was very nervous to become a parent and also want to continue forward and grow in a creative career and try different things and do new stuff. But I realized after a while that the reasons why I didn't, why I was on the fence about having children and the reasons why I didn't want to have children were all, well, the reasons why I did want to have children were all emotional and also it felt possible. And I felt like me and my husband would be mm-hmm. great parents. And I also like really like want, I wanted, you know, invest in this young person my child, I guess, eventually and help them grow and see them grow and really, and, and raise them and, you know, the challenges that come with that. Um, but also like I, they were all love emotional reasons. And the reasons why I didn't want to become a parent were all systemic reasons. And there's so many points in, in here where I'm like, I kind of, I'm like, I'm like, wow, so many things could be fixed if childcare was something that our country took seriously yeah. or if healthcare was something that our country took more seriously. Yeah. And that like, you know, like some of the, some of these things I'm like, there's other developed nations that have mm-hmm. economies that operate mm-hmm. similar to the United States for a closer comparison who don't have these same exact issues, issues. with childcare and yeah. who's going to do what for the house. And, you know, all, there's, there's like another way and systemic change to me felt like this thing that was like kind of looming over that whole point of the book. Now there are some passages in there I thought were, that were really interesting, which is why I enjoyed like reading that chapter. But I agree. I was, I was, I was kind of like, it felt a little, like you said, she said it's back 50 years. I I kind of felt like, um, it was just kind of like, Oh, this is kind of date. Like this is a little stale, you know? Yeah. It's stale. And like, and then it takes us to the chapter about, uh, women who abandon right and it's like she tries to say that Joni Mitchell is a monster for giving up her child for adoption but to me it feels like that's not monstrous at all that's like no if Joni Mitchell's no Joni Mitchell knows she can't do it she can't do it and like also, I think that she's trying to say that that's like what people think about yes women who do that kind of yes. stuff but I just don't think that the narrative around women who give up their children for adoption is that they're monsters I think that it's that they're that they're you know underwater that they know that they can't do it or that they don't want it or they're not able to live that life and I I don't to me, it doesn't feel like a monster. Like there are monstrous women. Like where is my chapter on Roseanne Barr? Let's talk about that monster. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. You're trying to force, like to say that the worst thing that a woman could be is a bad mother. Well, what about women who aren't mothers? Are they not capable of being monsters or are they monsters because they chose not to have kids? Like I just wanted more of the argument to be clear to me because the argument felt very wishy-washy. Yes, that chapter specifically about like um, abandoning mothers, like it, coming after this uh, chapter, like you said, am I a monster? Where she's kind of like, there's a chapter where she's like wrestling with, you know, am I a monster? She's wrestling with being a mother and being an artist. And then the following chapter is like, well, then then the next, the, it seems like the only thing you can do is just abandon your kids. I was yeah. just kind of like, is that how these are meant to be in conversation? And one woman but, abandoned her, two of her kids, but she did take the third kid with her. So she was still a mother. I mean, I know like, she, uh, that's what I was going to say. She was still a mother and she's still in, and however, you know, uh, was however narcissistic or codependent she may have been. She also did 
uh, find other ways to like be a mother to mother or to mentor mm-hmm. very closely in um, a non-traditional sense that also right. kind of put her in a position of like someone's mother. So I was like, okay, like, like you said, she still had the one kid, like one out of three is still one. Yeah. It's still, still a kid. one. Still mom. <laughs> She's You're still doing somebody. motherly duty. They're still yeah, diapers. So I, okay. <laughs> I kind of got that. Uh, and it did make me want to know more about Doris Lessing. And I will say for that yeah. chapter, it made me way more interested in, in learning about Doris Lessing and getting into her. Um, Cause I think like, for the time, like abandoning your children at all, I mean, still, for the time for now shit um that was a very provocative idea um but yeah the idea of Joni Mitchell as like a uh the idea of Joni Mitchell as like you know I mean adoption there's so many things to get into with that and culturally it's been very interesting to see how conversations around adoption have um really shifted and changed even just so acutely in the past two years um but I like Joni Mitchell's reasons for putting her child up for adoption are like, I don't know. It's just culturally, it's almost like I was like, we, I feel like we also need to like ground culturally like ourselves in that time to understand like the context in which that adoption would have been taking place and all the other factors that might've been at play. It's not the same as um, somebody who may decide that motherhood is not for them because they have an array of options or something like right, that. Or right. Because like they're, just, you know, I don't know. I, I thought that the way that it was framed was a little uh, iffy. That chapter and then another chapter about female monsters, about um, Valerie Solanus and Virginia yeah. Woolf. Also to the me, Lady Lazarus or something. Yeah, chapter. those to me also were, that, that chapter also to me was kind of like not fully, it wasn't fully landing for me and it wasn't fully. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Also the idea of suicide as a self-crime to me was kind of like, I had yeah. I took issue with that. That's a little I'm tricky not, too. Yeah, and I'm not like up to I, I I wouldn't say that I'm like up to date um journalistically or psychologically on like the correct or most eloquent ways to speak about suicide. So I don't want to say that I'm some sort of expert, but I felt like presenting suicide as a self-crime was um kind of bizarre. Like the idea that yeah. I think she was trying to and also it just it felt like the idea that she was trying to get at with that like Virginia Woolf died by suicide and then abandoned her children. That also felt like more thematically tied to yeah. the previous chapter about yeah. female monsters. Yeah. I just, I feel like there are female monsters that I wish she had talked about and none of them were the ones that she chose to talk about or like, I wish that she treated women the same way that she treated men and talked about women who had done, you know, terrible things that are objectively terrible things. <laughs> like, yeah. I guess Valerie yeah. Solanus, like attempted murder, that's worthy of considering that monstrous, is, I guess, you is. know, like I get that. I, yeah. I also felt like, um, I did think it was a little strange when she said like, oh, I don't know if Valerie shot Andy Warhol because that was not the right target for her. Oh I, yeah. I thought that was like a strange judgment to me. Yeah. <laughs> Like from outside the club. I mean, unless, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know anything about Dieter's sexuality, but uh, it seemed as if to me she was writing from somebody outside of the LGBTQ plus mm-hmm, community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm like, just as a black person, our, everybody has their own intra-community shit. And just uh, having some understanding of like, even though Andy Warhol was not, I'm not saying she should have shot him. That's not what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I guess what yeah. I'm trying to say is it, it seemed like throughout so many, even in the first chapter or two of the book she has all of these ways in which she can lay out things that may have 
happened to Woody Allen or Roman Polanski mm-hmm. um, that might have been traumatic. It might have affected their behavior. With Valerie Solana, she was like, I, well, I don't even understand why she'd want to shoot Andy yeah. Warhol because he's a gay man. And they were, uh, I'm thinking like, well, that's yeah. kind of like painting with a broad brush to assume that Valerie yeah. Solanas and Andy Warhol were having in any way similar experiences. As right. he was somebody who was way more with way more institutional support and love and somebody who yeah. was becoming a part of the art establishment and was like a wealthy white man. Um, it kind of was like a, mm, I don't know if, if I, I'm not saying I'm authorized to speak on it, but I'm like, I don't know if you're authorized. To I don't know if you are either. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're like out of time, but I just, I know you mentioned that you had other things you wanted to say about the last chapter. Was there anything that you really wanted to mention that oh, you felt like you hadn't. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so with the last chapter of the book, which is called Beloveds, um, it focuses on this essay by Pearl Clegg, a writer who I love. Um, if you haven't read Mad at Miles, which is the essay that's discussed in this chapter, oh my God, go find it. Um, I have a copy actually of the book, Mad at Miles. I'm going to link like it a, in the show notes as well. Yes, so good. Um, and I have a copy of the book, Mad at Miles, which I lent to somebody, which I was like, I wanted to look at it and I was like, damn it. Um, but um, that, that for me, like Pearl Clegg's, um, you know, Dieter gives it, gives the, the essay a lot of, um, a lot of time and, and space. And she really um, credits Clegg. I feel like I was reading the chapter and I felt like she was crediting her with yeah. kind of giving her a way to think about these things or a path mm-hmm. forward to figuring mm-hmm. out what to do with the love that you have for someone's art, but mm-hmm. also really considering their uh, legacy. And, um, so yeah, it was interesting to arrive at this book because I was also, I came into it thinking like, Pearl Clegg already said some of these things. And then I got to the end and I was like, okay, so we agree. Yeah, we she agree. even says in the acknowledgements, thanks to Pearl Clegg for getting it right. Exactly. Exactly. And I totally agree. Um, but I, um, my path to thinking about a lot of these things is really colored by, like I said, me being a black woman and hip hop fan. And then... Uh, looking also around though at like oh Sam Cooke oh okay mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. oh like you know what I'm saying like looking around <laughs> like everybody else looking I'm like oh Marvin Gaye okay cool Prince mm-hmm. okay all right you know like so right. many of the the people whose music that I grew up with and that I enjoyed and still do enjoy in many cases you know for better or worse um like Miles Davis um the way that she came around to thinking about that and reading her grapple through that through essays um, was just really powerful for for me and really meaningful mm-hmm. for me. Um, so I was really glad. So I would say like, I mean, I think this book is actually, I think this book is really well written. I think it's really good. Again, I think that she grounds it in her specific experience. But you, if you're going to read this, you have to have read to. Mad okay. at Miles. You have to read it. And also too, Pearl Clegg's memoirs. That's another really good audio book. Oh, okay. so oh, okay. good. Okay. So good. Or I even memoirs or diaries. So, so, so good. Got but it. yeah, I, um, I, I, it doesn't surprise me that a black woman had a lot of these thoughts and years expressed ago. them. And yeah, like 30, 40 years ago and expressed them yeah. so eloquently. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah. I just, I think what I really appreciated about that last essay is like people who are so dogmatic about, I will not listen to this. I will not watch this because of the crimes of the monster and can feel strong in that and just say that out loud. To me, I find that to be really irritating because I'm like, Mm. there's so much to grapple with here. And like, sure, you can close the book on all of these people, but like, then what happens when the next person comes out? You're just going to stop 
like I think like to love art is to I think you know Dieter says this is to love monsters like hmm. sometimes that is part of it and whether or not you decide to to listen or not listen or watch or not watch there has to be some grappling and I think the people who are just like oh this accusation was made I'm never gonna look at this thing again I, I'm just like I don't think that's real I don't think that you're fully like loving the art like I just I don't know there's hmm. something about it this feels like so. Like, for example, for me, I am like, I never read Harry Potter. I'm never going to read Harry Potter. But that's also because I never read Harry Potter. It's easy (laughs) for me to say I hate J.K. Rowling because I don't care. I've seen two Woody Allen movies in my whole life. I didn't like them. I don't care. I'm never going to watch a Woody Allen movie again because it doesn't mean anything, right? Mm -hmm. It's so much harder when the art actually means something to to you and that like the monsters are meaningful and have impact. And so I, I appreciated that last essay because... I feel like the loving of the art is what's so painful when these things come about and like that that was acknowledged too. Like as a fan, it hurts. It's sad. I'm like, I have to let go of Michael Jackson, who my dad loves so much and my dad has passed away. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that was a thing we had. And now we don't, Mm -hmm. I don't get to have that because, because he was a monster and like, I can't enjoy it anymore. And that is sad to me, you know? And like, mm-hmm. I'm glad that we talked about the love that she talked about the love part of it, because I think that's so important. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I mean, cause it, like you said, it gets at like uh, the sense of loss. Like these are loss. kind of like, these, we, these are all, we talk about these things because we enjoy them. They make us feel human. Uh, they bring mm-hmm. us so much joy. And when you feel like, I mean, for me, sometimes I'll be like, oh, I can't, like, I'm not, I won't listen to this person. I'm not going to watch this. But more so what happens more frequently for me as somebody who has survived some traumas at the hands of some monsters, I more so can't. I can't, yeah. like, I, I, there, there was that movie, uh, Beyond the Lights, Gina oh. Prince Bythewood, baby, that is like one of her <laughs> best movies. It's so fucking good. But it stars Nate Parker. And those allegations against him and what happened to uh, the yeah. young woman afterward. Yeah. I I can't. It's hard for me. I I can't really get. I, I It's a right. movie that I, I love so much that I want. I, I watched it twice in theaters and I cried. I brought somebody oh with me the gosh. second time. I was <laughs> obsessed. I hadn't felt that intense about a movie since I was like a teen. But yeah. um, I can't really rewatch it. I would love right. to, but I can't. Right. And I think but that's to, to the me, thing that yeah. gets it. That, that's the thing that I felt like the last chapter kind yeah, of opened really the door gets for. That. Yeah. Yes, I think because then because you are truly grappling with loving the thing and hating the thing at the same time. And I feel like there are people who are just like so like holier than thou about some of this stuff that I'm like, well, then you didn't really love the thing because it's not that easy. If you really love the thing, if you really care about the art, I don't think it's possible to just be like, well, I'm done with it, you know? Yeah. Um, that's just my feeling about it. We always talk about the cover and the title, and I know we're almost done, but I just want to say Great quickly cover. about the cover. I love the t- cover. And for people Great who cover. don't know, that's a photo of Pablo Picasso. I didn't know. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it makes it an even better cover. A lot of people are like, I don't Ooh. I don't like this cover or whatever. I'm like, no, this cover is fucking brilliant. No, this co- literally my and husband the title is sitting on the couch. Yeah, the, monster, the title's great. And also, I like the A fans dilemma. I love it because she's mm-hmm. just like. I'm a fan. I'm one of you, but also this is a fan. I am a fan. Mm-hmm. This is coming from my point of view. And these are like yeah. my touchstones. Yeah. And I thought that yeah. was really smart. But the photo, my husband saw it sitting on the couch and he was like, that's a good book cover. Never said that to me. I read books all the time for work, as I told you. And he's like, <laughs> that's a good book cover. That's the one. It's so it good. 
Um, Brittany, this has been such a dreamy conversation. I feel like there's so many other things we didn't get to talk about that I wish we could have. But thank you so much for being here. This was such thank a joy. Thank you. This was so much fun. I had the best time ever. Oh, my God. This makes me want to have a book club in real life. Okay, let's do it. I would be love to talk about books with you anytime. Um, yes. Everyone else, listen to the end of this episode to find out what our October book club pick is going to be. Brittany, thank you so much. And everyone else, I will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, of course, to Brittany Luce for being our guest. And I'd also like to thank Emma Gordon for helping to make this episode possible. All right, it is now time to announce our October book club pick. You've waited long enough. We are doing Toni Morrison in October. And our book is the 1981 novel, Tar Baby. Make sure you listen to our episode on October 4th to find out who our guest will be for the book club episode of Tar Baby on October 25th. If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the stacks, you can follow us on social media at the stacks pod on Instagram and TikTok and threads and at the stacks pod underscore on Twitter. And you can always check out our website at the This episode of the stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 